Thanks for coming back to Pelham Place. I'm Jay Pelham, and this is the fifth installment of the new show. If you're just checking out the show for the first time, please be sure to subscribe and check out my guests from the first four episodes. On this episode, which is part one of two, I connect with award-winning producer, engineer, and musician Jack Mealy. Jack and I have been friends since the late 90s or so when I was still living in New Orleans. We spend a lot of time talking about his studio work, the value of music, the benefits of physical media like CDs and vinyl, and even a brief discussion on the evolution of the record deal. Be sure to connect with Jack on social media or at his website, jackmealy.com. And thanks again for checking out Pelham Place. Sit back, grab a drink, and enjoy this conversation with Jack Mealy. My daddy was a handsome devil. He had a chain. <laughs> it's been a little crazy, man. How you been? I've been okay. You know, it's um, yeah, same here. I haven't I haven't been working for the last uh, two months. Actually, today made made two months out of the office. Um, so I've just been you know trying to stay occupied and you know coming up with with things to do around the house and um, you know I did some some side work for my cousin and his company uh, mm-hmm. out in California. Uh, just like some graphic stuff and, you know, marketing stuff for him. And, and finally decided I'm going to put this podcast together. I've been wanting to do it for years and, you know, never, it was, uh, time was always my excuse. I just didn't have the time to do it. And I had, right. I had no excuse now. So what about you, man? You, are you uh, still with the, uh, the music shed? Well, so I, I have um, ceased I have ceased uh, managing the music shed. I um, I got out of that. I, I still have a, my own studio. There. Um, I just call it Jack Mealy Productions Limited. It's uh, I have my own suite there. That's a full working studio, and um, you know it's a great it's a great smaller um, overdub type studio. But I mean it's it's funny because I think it actually has better gear than Studio A. But it yeah. uh, but it's you know, and, and I do everything that I can do everything. I, today I was there cutting drums, you know. So the only thing I probably couldn't do there is like a full, hey, we want to bring in a full band. Everybody wants to track simultaneously with isolation. That's probably not a great thing for me to do in my little corner of the world there. So in that case, I would either use Studio A or I would uh, take it to Studio in the Country or um, – I do some work, uh, you know, I do actually, I really sort of split my time between studio in the country and the music shed as far as studio A is concerned. Uh, and then I just do the rest of the stuff in house. And, um, and like, you know, today, the, the, um, track we're working on today, I'm, we're cutting every instrument one at a time, you know, we're doing the drums and then we're doing the bass and then the, the guitar and the vocals and whatnot. So, so that type of situation is perfect for where I am. So it's, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been, I'm over there still. And I, uh, I have a studio here that I'm sitting in right now in, in Covington that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's full on, like, you know, full working, oh, wow. studio that's, that's got, you know, console and a bunch of gear in it. And I have a whole like arsenal of mics. Uh, I mean, so it's, I'm over here and, and I, I do a lot of mixing over here. I'm, I'm mainly set up 
in Covington for mixing and um, and and overdubs, uh, you know, vocal overdubs and guitar overdubs and stuff like that. Uh, but but I, I actually really love this room. I actually I know this room really well, and I, I crank out some great mixes in here. Since the quarantine happened, I've been kind of slammed. I, uh, it's been great. It's been great. I've been I've probably mixed seven records since all this happened, um, and wow. and I have I have more and more on the docket. I, they just you know people keep people keep bringing them to me. I guess because they they have nothing to do, so they're all finishing their record, you know, which is great for me. Um, that being said, the the live entertainment aspect of my life is completely decimated um you know so that's that's something that just completely went away so thank god that i had the studio and my my mixing chops and um and i was just somebody who was just ready when all this happened to just go full on 24 7 you know mixing because before i was kind of splitting my time between producing and, and live you know, I was probably playing three to four nights a week, you know, um, on tour. And then I would, it would be sort of like a, like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at the studio producing records. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday would be, try, you know, playing gigs. And then Sunday I try and keep, I keep try to keep Sunday up. But usually I would be coming in from someplace like, oh, we're driving home from Dallas on Sunday or I'm flying home from Orlando or I'm whatever so half of sunday usually ended up getting squashed um so it was, it was difficult it was really difficult i was you know i mean how many days a year that is easily 150 to almost 200 shows a year you know wow and um and uh just in 2019 did a lot of did a lot of records did uh, just did i kind of forget to be honest with you because i mean i was telling my new assistant today I live in sort of a tournament Burnham kind of uh, kind of atmosphere where I'm constantly just pushing things off the desk. Like, okay, doing track for this person, mixing that and doing that, getting that overdubs here, and I'm just constantly just pushing stuff off the desk. And uh, so the the amount of output is is pretty pretty gnarly. Like, um, it's only every now and then. It's maybe when I say now and then maybe three times a year, four times a year, do I get a project where there's enough budget in the project for the band to really do it right. And they sit down and we spend, you know, two weeks mixing a record, you know, as opposed to let's crank this, these, you know, 10 mixes out in three days or four days. And um, I, I generally, to do it right, it generally takes me, I can maybe do two a day, like without rushing, you know, without rushing it, depending on the complexity of the song too. And I'm all, it's always, it's because I'm always kind of mixing as I go, you know, like I know guys that could mix a song in, you know, an hour, you know, but I also know guys that take a week to mix one song, you know, depending sure. on how complex something is, you know, so I generally take, I could probably do two a day if I had if I had to, and that's that's a ten hour day. It's like five hours per tune. But by the end of by the end of ten hours, your ears are so burnt that you end up coming back the next day and going, "Oh, I, there's a mistake in this in this second mix. I need to fix it," and they, or I, I lost perspective on this, and it, my 
you know, it started to run away with me and I went the wrong direction. You have to go back and tweak things. And so nothing's ever really done at the end of that day, you know? Um, so like I'm in the middle of, um, um, mixing, uh, some, I mean, like when I say it's all over the map, I, I'm in the middle of mixing something for a metal band right now. Yesterday I had an electronica band, like a, like a, like killers, Franz Ferdinand kind of band, mm-hmm. send me a track, uh, from another, you know, another state. And then, uh, next week I have to mix a full jazz album, 10 songs. So, wow. so, I mean, it's, you know, and I, and I do a lot of production stuff too. Like I have, um, I'm working right now with, a a client who's a doctor who writes songs on his own, but doesn't really have the, the ability to, uh, to, to record them himself. So he just records these like little iPhone demos and sends them to me. And I fully realize the song and play every instrument on it and produce it and send it back to him. So that's what I was doing today. Like today I was, I played drums on this song and then tomorrow I'll do bass and guitar and vocals and, and then get it out to him and push that off the desk, you know? So that, that's really interesting. And you're basically just doing all of that, you know, virtually sending, sending mm-hmm. tracks back and forth. And, yep. uh, you know, I, I assume just getting, getting his feedback virtually and, and we have like a little pre-production kind of thing where like, we'll sit down and I'll go, this is what I'm hearing. And this is what I think. And what do you think of this? And, and I, you know, I know that I, it's usually faux pas to, um, to like make comparisons like to like other songs like like the last song i did for him like reminded me of kind of like a goo goo dolls kind of thing and and when you say that they go, oh, i don't want to sound like anybody else it's like well you, you know i understand you don't want to sound like anybody, but i need a it gives me a compass you know if i exactly. say goo goo dolls and he says no no i'm thinking more harry connick jr then then what that does is that steers my brain into a different direction you know, so he just, we just have a, like a loose, he trusts me implicitly. So like, we just sort of have like a loose production meeting and uh, he's never once sent anything back to me saying he didn't approve or like it. So, you know, knock wood on that. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever been in a situation working with, you know, another artist or musician who you know, didn't have a, uh, a, another group that they were inspired by. And, and so I think, they all you know, it's, it's just natural that someone, uh, you know, someone is going to, to compare you to whoever. And right. so, you know, wouldn't you want the musician's opinion first before people just start comparing him? Uh, you know, if you don't want to be compared to the Goo Goo Dolls, then, you know, let's definitely steer in a different direction. But it's better to have the musician's input, uh, right. you know, on that first. Everybody, everybody has it. Everybody has some influence. I don't care who you are or what you say. Like, you know, I had this this one artist one time tell me that, she like, I asked her who, who were her what, what did you like to listen to? And she, she told me, I don't listen to anybody's songs but my own. And I, I thought that was like such a, such a short-sighted comment. Uh, I couldn't believe it. But I, um, I, I, was, I said, okay. It was like, it's people kidding themselves is what it is. Because unless you grew up on a desert island, you heard something that affected you. 
and and it and it imprinted in your musical psyche of how you're made up you know it's nobody nobody is is insulated from that it, it, it's such a big thing to think about these days especially in the digital world because you know a lot of times all of these different distribution websites and social media sites when you start to build that presence for your music everything is based on well if you like this artist then you would like this person sure it's all uh, an algorithm it, it's all an algorithm exactly and and so you know even if you go into itunes to download a song it's going to show you people that have bought this song has have also bought these 10 songs mm-hmm. um you know it's a part of it and so i think that's really important for musicians to think about because that's, you know, you have to kind of play into that algorithm a little bit. And if you have the decision of saying, I want to be grouped in with, with other bands that sound like this, then you need to know who those bands are. And not only that, you know, half of them are young bands that, um, half of them are young bands that want to make it and whatever that means this, these days, but sure. Half of them are bands that want to make it. So therefore, you should pay attention. You should pay attention to what you sound like or what do you sound dated? Do you sound current? Do you sound, you know, I, you know, and I've also done this kind of thing before too where I've worked with bands that sounded so much like another band, but they weren't influenced by that band at all, legitimately. Like they, like, I, I, you know, I had uh, recently worked with, with a band that I was like, man, you, you guys remind me so much of Primus, you know, like, and they, they were not, they did not have any influence from Primus at all, but the, but the makeup of the band, how they, um, how they came together and how they worked together as a unit reminded me of that. And, you know, and they didn't take it as an insult. I mean, Primus is a great band. I mean, some people can't, can't stand them, you know, but, but they're unique, and that 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 was another thing. This band is super unique sounding, and that was another thing that made me even more think about uh, think about that. But it's it's the music nerd in me, it's the producer in me. I can't help but draw those parallels, those lines. You know, it's um, I just can't help my my musical encyclopedia is too broad. It's that no matter what I hear. I end up drawing this line going, Oh, that reminds me of this. Oh, that reminds me of this. And, and instead of seeing that as a, uh, you know, a negative, I use it as a positive because what I do is I, I use it where I keep the band away from, I, I have enough knowledge to be able to keep the band away from the traps that they might fall in where they could be considered a carbon copy of that, of some other band or, they could be considered, a, um, you know, like not plagiarizing, but 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 the influence is too obvious. You know what I mean? Like when you when you listen to the Killers, you can't not think of Duran Duran. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's just, but but they sound enough like themselves to, to where it's not. Um, it it does. You know, I can listen to both of those bands blind and know which band is which. You know, so there's enough they there's an influence there, but there's enough originality to where it keeps them from being pigeonholed as a carbon copy. You know, 
I think that's a good point because there obviously there have been some some very important cases over the past few years where you know we've seen these these copyright infringement issues with uh, between two different bands. Um, but I think the Killers and Duran Duran is a great comparison because you're right. It is such a the Killers is a such a unique sound, but you hear. You hear the influence not only of Duran Duran, but of that that synth pop era sure. that you know was was really missed in music when they came out. Uh, you know, it was so fresh to hear that again on the radio that I almost feel like the the absence of that sound really helped the Killers get where they are. Oh yeah, because of the influence. I mean, and definitely like you know. It's not just Duran Duran, it's OMD, New Order, Depeche Mode, uh, uh, Pet Shop Boys, all of those, those electro-pop bands. A minute ago, you were talking about the young bands that, that come to you um, to record. And, you know, of course, they have that dream of, of wanting to make it. And, you know, the big question these days is, what, what does that mean? And, uh, you know, I think it brings up a couple of good questions. One... I think what's your opinion on young bands today who think they can do everything themselves, um, put out, you know, record a, a, a full length album, put it out themselves and just roll with it with that DIY attitude versus going to someone like yourself, who's a producer an engineer with, you know, decades of experience behind you. I definitely see the benefit of, of going to someone like you um, well, as, a, as a young band. But I've also heard stories of, you know, these young bands that have done it completely themselves. What's your thought on that? My thought, honestly, is that the proof's in the pudding. You're, you're either, you either have somebody, it's usually not, a, it's, it's almost, Never. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever seen an example in 25 years of making records. I don't know if I've ever seen an example of a band where every person in the band like collectively did this. There's always one guy. It's always there's one guy in the band who's talented, who, who um, can record the record and mix it and get it to sound right. And, and like, you know, and, and look, I have, I've heard some incredible, um, uh, I've heard some incredible uh, efforts from, from bands that straight up sound like as good as anything that I could do or better, you know? So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying that I feel like people, they don't, they sometimes don't respect the um, younger bands. Don't sometimes don't respect the kind of learning curve that it takes to get. Like, how can I explain this? When you hear a record like um, um, the last Metallica record, or when you listen to the um, the new record by, you know, or like a I don't know what a Breaking Benjamin record or whatever you know, some record by some band who has money and push behind them. You can immediately hear 
the how you like I always have I always have a, a saying it sounds expensive like whenever I hear something I'm, I can hear that something sounds expensive like like there's a sheen and there's a gel and a glue that's that's happening on those records that sounds that sounds like somebody who knew what they were doing did this and and it and it, you know and look there's also the converse I've heard some records that were mixed by big guys that I think sound dreadful, you know, and I've heard, I heard them and I, and I'm, I'm baffled by, I was like, wow, this, this really doesn't sound good. But, but when you get to a certain level, like when Pearl Jam comes out with their new album, it's probably Brendan O'Brien, you know, their longtime producer who is mixing it. And that guy is, he's, he's, he's a genius. He's brilliant. You know? So when you know when you look at credits and you see oh mixed by Ross Hogarth it's like that guy's brilliant he knows how to mix a record better than anybody and you know and just like Chris Lord Algae and Chad Blake and and Bob Clearmount I can go on for days of guys that know what they're doing and there's a reason there's a reason why those same Ryan Hewitt's another one why those same guys are always the guys that people go to to get the stuff done. Now, there is a new cachet of guys who are coming up, younger guys who are really good. But then, on the flip side, I see a, young, a bunch of young guys that will come up and they don't have any experience. They, they don't have the, you know, the, those 10,000 hours, you know, that you need to get brilliant at something. And... Um, and, you know, and like I said, you have, all right, you have people like, like Billie Eilish and, and her brother making records in their bedroom. Man, people have been doing that for years. There's, yep. you heard that record? There ain't nothing to it. There's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that, I think it's a good record. I, I'm not a huge Billie Eilish fan, but I can hear that that record was done well. It wasn't mixed by, it wasn't mixed by the brother though. Um, exactly. I, I was actually right before you mentioned it, I was going to bring that up is, you know, I think people have the misconception based on, on Billie Eilish's story that, oh, that whole album was recorded in the bedroom. Well, yeah, but there was people, I mean, it's a like, lot done in the bedroom, but it still had, it still had people, other hands touch it before it was listen, ever released. Man, look, that, that's another thing is that let's just call it what it is. There's a lot of, there's almost zero live mics on that record. You know, yep. there's the vocal. There's the vocal and the rest is done electronically. Keyboards, loops, samples. And I'm not, I'm not marginalizing that because I think what they did is really, really good. And really, there's a lot of quality to it. And, and it's, it's difficult because those because loops, samples, keyboards, EDM stuff, not EDM, but electronic source stuff has a full range of frequency. It goes all the way from probably 10 or t 10 or 20 Hertz all the way up until 20 to 30 kilohertz. So when you're mixing that stuff, it doesn't, it's difficult to get it to all sit together when you start piling tracks upon tracks upon tracks upon tracks, because you're sucking up all of the frequency, all the, uh, mm -hmm. all the frequency band, there's no place for everything to live because everything is full range. So you have to really know how to carve things out to get it to all live in its own little space. 
and then get the vocal to sit on top of that and not sound like a karaoke track. So that being said, a professional guy who I can't remember who mixed the record, but I, um, but you know, the, it's mixed by a real deal guy who's I'm sure mixed a ton of records and knew what he was doing. And on top of that, on top of that, everybody seems to forget that like, Oh, they recorded in a bedroom. It's like the first Boston album was recorded in a bedroom. And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a single like keyboard on it. It's all organs and like, and you know, real, it's all microphones, mic'd guitars and there's DI guitars too, but everything was, you know, mic'd acoustics and that, that thing was even mixed in the basement, you know, and, and that thing sounds amazing, you know, so it can be done. And a, a lot of these records, people don't realize they're the only, they're the first ones to really sort of get a light shine on them but this man records are a lot of records are made in bedrooms nowadays i think the first lincoln park record was made like that you know i think that they i think they said that they they got their advance and they just went and bought a pro tools rig and they converted their house or something into like a little makeshift studio a lot of bands do it you don't you know is it great to go to a studio absolutely I love studios. It's a, you know, but the smaller studios like mine are the are they're the way of the future, you know, because but there is something to be said about the bigger studio because if you're trying to do a record where really the, the place where the, the rubber meets the road is drums. I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. Drums is the place where you just can't fake it. You can fake it now with like they have all these easy drummer and you know BFW and uh, or BFD or whatever it's called. It's it's I don't really use them, but they're but when you start to put drums together, they have programs that are fantastic. They really are. They're fantastic. They really, if you know, if you're good with them, they really do sound like real drums. But so that's becoming easier. They're making that easier, and samples are crazy good nowadays as a matter of fact i'm actually about to come out with my own uh sample pack collection i'm going to be selling it on my website but it's going to be you know the jack mealy drum sample collection it's going to be um itemized by every studio that i've worked at uh in town and so like there's going to be you know the music shit studio a the music shit studio b fudge truck farm green sound savannah studios like it's all itemized like that and then when you go into each studio it'll give you kicks snares toms cymbals whatever and then you know so i have multiple stuff on each thing but that's i'm working on it right now it's completed i'm just beta testing it right now so but so samples are really great but it's hard to get it it's hard to fake a room sound that's really where when because and the reason why i organize those things by studio is because each studio has its own sonic thumbprint you know this studio sounds different than this studio and this studio sounds different than this studio. So the drums I did at studio in the country sound different than music shed studio B, you know, because the room is different. And so that's really what, um, and, and I have samples of all the room sounds and you can even use those as like impulse responses, like for like an impulse reverb. So anyway, those things are really what's hard to fake. And when you deal with a, uh, a record like Billie Eilish's, where it's all electronic drums, it doesn't really matter. 
But if you were trying to make the new Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band record, you know, and you try to do it in a bedroom, you'd have a hard time, you know, because sure. you can't get the isolation. Even if you tracked it one instrument at a time, you might be able to do it. But you could. It's hard to get the isolation. It's hard to get the the room to sound correct. And and also you're throttling a band like that. You know, any band that's that's you know worth its salt is going to want to play together. You know, they're going to want to they're going to want to basically cut the main tracks together. And um, so, what do I think about it? I think that it's actually it isn't really revolutionary because they've been doing it since the seventies. But I do think that um, it's really interesting that, that that that's the record that they chose to sort of shine that light on. Because I'm telling you right now, I've worked on a lot of records that were from major artists that a lot of the stuff was done at their house. You know, I mean, I remember Nancy Wilson, uh, I'm sorry, Ann Wilson, talking about how they recorded some of the new Heart record with their iPhone. You know, like some wow. of the some of the sounds that made it on the record were done on a tour bus on an iPhone. You know, so it's been happening. You know, this is stuff that's been happening. Um, and another thing that's interesting that I like to ask people when they the guy Phineas gets a lot of credit for the uh, for the Billy Alice record, and I know that he was sort of the the mastermind behind a lot of it. Um, but does it look how much? How much money do you think was spent on that artist from the label? It, it's untold fortunes with the media push that's behind that record. Do you? I, t- I tell this to artists all the time. A label's job is to minimize risk. You're there. Billy Eilish is an investment for the label. She's a, she's a great artist, but the label invested a lot of money in her, so therefore she's an investment. So therefore, you want to minimize your risk while maximizing your capital gain. It's just it's just business. So why would you give a record that you have this much invested in to a person who doesn't know how to mix records? You know, Absolutely. you want you want to make sure you're going to call somebody like Chris Lord Algae or or you know, Tony Maserati or somebody like that who knows how to mix records and you're going to give it to them, you know, because that is the person who is going to be able to minimize the risk of it sounding good or the minimize the risk the, of it sounding bad. Excuse me. It, yeah. And, and then the mastering on top of that, oh, that yeah. you know, a, a lot, I mean, the young bands uh, that are just starting out don't even consider mastering as part of the process anymore. I guarantee you they got, you know, probably Bob Ludwigers or, you know, Vlado Miller or somebody like that to master it, you know, they, uh, or, um, the guy over at, uh, Sterling, uh, I, but I mean, you know, there's, there's a ton of mastering guys who are, who are big. And it's funny because, you know, it's interesting is that I, I noticed this about, about a lot of mastering guys, um, just like mix engineers, there are a lot of mastering guys that tend to, they master all genres of music, but they specialize in something like, like a lot of, uh, you know, I have a friend out in out in L.A. who uh, is a is a pretty well known mastering engineer, and he gets he just did like the last Faith No More album, and and, and he did um, he does a lot of like metal, like a lot of like metal guys use him, and like the big metal records, you know, will use him. And um, but he also did the last Yes album too, but he doesn't do a lot of, as far as I know, I don't think he does a lot of like electronic stuff. You know, so there are certain guys who are good at certain things, you know, or they specialize in certain things. Like me, I'll record anything. 
but if you come to me for producing and recording, I'm going to excel if it's rock, jazz, pop. Uh, like when I say pop, I mean like like a singer songwriter kind of pop. Um, right. Like a, like John Mayer or or like um, like the way Gavin DeGraw used to be. Or like if, if I'm not the guy to come to if you want me to make the next, you know, Christina Aguilera record. You know, I'm just not that guy. And I and it took me years because I'm so highly ambitious. It took, <laughs> it, it took me years to admit that to myself. Like it's just not what I do. Yeah, and you know that that says a lot for for you as as a business person. And you know, one thing that uh, that I talk about a lot. In fact, I was just doing an interview uh, a couple of days ago for another podcast, and um, you know, they asked me what I wanted to do in 10 years, you know, where I saw my career in 10 years. And I, you know, I said, right now, I can't answer that question because I love what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. And so, you know, I think that passion part of it, like you, like you said, the instinct part of it is what you've been passionate about all your life. And so it's much easier for you to do that than to have someone walk into your studio that you're not necessarily passionate about that type of music and then expect you to give them a hundred percent. Right. And you know, something I've learned over the years too is, is to, I do completely surrender myself to whatever I'm working on. Um, like uh, I just did a rap record for, uh, for an artist and it came out really, really good. Like it was really strong. Like I, I, uh, I not only did I produce it, but I tracked, I tracked it. And I also played guitar on it and did a bunch of harmony parts and played bass on it. And like, and I, I do what I know. I integrated real instruments into it. Like I played, you know, real guitar and real vocal harmonies, not using a vocoder or not, you know, like things like that. And I, what I'll do is inject what I do best into the, the genre and it ends up making it something totally different. And the guy was freaking out. He loved it, you know. So I'll work on whatever, and I'll make sure that it's it's absolutely the best that it can be, as far as as far as I can take it, at least. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here. Um, sure. You know, we're, we're talking in terms of of recording albums, and uh, you know, these these times, these last few years of uh, things changing in the way that music is distributed. Um, clearly getting away from, uh, you know, physical media and many releases happening uh, as singles mm-hmm. um, or, or EPs, but more EPs more often. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, do you, do you see any, any benefit or lack of, of benefit from getting away from the, the album concept? Well, I think that, well, there's a, I have a couple of points on this. First off, it's, things are cylindrical. They, it always comes back around. And Mm -hmm. what we're doing now is we're just going back to the way it was in the fifties, you know, in the fifties and the early sixties, there were people who actually didn't ever release albums. They just released singles. They didn't, they didn't have an album there. They had a record deal. So, a lot of people don't realize the difference because they grew up in a time where when you bought a record, it was an album, like a record, 
you know, but a record just right. means record. It means one song. So to record one song is a record, to cut a record. And basically what I mean by that is that um, when you would get a record deal, you would get a record deal for a song, not for an album. And then that single would, uh, you know, would basically try to climb the charts or, or whatever. I mean, basically, if you've ever seen that movie, That Thing You Do, mm-hmm. just like that. They cut, they cut one song with a B-side. And that record went up the charts and they went on tour. They only had a record. They didn't have an album. So then we get into the 70s and the, the age of album rock, you know, and where everything was an album and people were buying lots of media in the 70s and 80s. And then obviously the history, you know, the 90s, it became really, really bloated. Um, people, bands that didn't even kind of deserve gold and platinum albums you know so that was in the, the mid to late 90s and then and the whole thing came crashing down with the advent of most most people say the ipod but i disagree i think the advent of the mp3 codec is what made it go down i've traced it back in my mind and that to me was the single invention that it, that was the beginning of the end that was the and i think the mp3 is in, is one of the most incredible inventions of the last you know the last 50 years um because now there was a way to share music in a format that most people can't hear the difference. The MP3 is a very um, impressive codec. Like if you listen to it and then you flip from MP3 to wave, you know, back and forth, like blindfolded, there's only a handful of people who tell you who can really hear the difference. And, ha- and they actually did a study with a bunch of engineers like the top engineers and master and mixed engineers and stuff. I can't remember what, what magazine did this, but they did it and they basically found that they, that 50% of them got it right. Well, I mean, that means they're guessing. It's just a 50, you have a 50, 50 shot of getting it right. So that being said, now people can share music. Now people can burn CDs with a bunch of songs on it. Now people can send an email with, you know, and that's when the Napster thing came and the iPod thing came and I want to have a thousand songs on this little device. Well, that wouldn't be possible without that codec, you know? So, um, I know I'm, I am getting to the answer to your question. What do I think about people releasing singles? And what I think about it is what ended up happening is that with the music sharing and iPods and the MP3 codec and Napster and LimeWire and all that stuff, people got the impression somewhere along the line that music is free. And it's not free. It's expensive. It's expensive to make, but people take it and they think it's free, but it's not free. Just like they, they, you know, they think it's free, but they, they pay a subscription to listen to it. Just like people think information is free, but the information is not free. If all the library is closed, then that means you'd have to pay for information. You'd have to pay a cell phone bill or an internet bill in order to have access to information. Back to singles and EPs, I think that artists now, because of the low attention span of the listener, the complete saturation point uh, of anybody and everybody making records, um, Steve Luckather once said from Toto, he said, the problem is that you have a bunch of people who have no business making records making records because of the technology now somebody who's only you know minimally talented or marginally talented 
can make a record and if they have enough know-how can sound as good as the people who are really talented, you know, and that's yep. not a slight on anybody. I'm not naming names or, or saying anything like that, but I'm saying that there are a lot of people who can, um, can make, you know, propel the myth that they're better than they are and therefore they get, their records made and sometimes they make some fairly great records there are people who can barely sing who have hits because they're good writers but they shouldn't be the one singing does that make sense yeah you know? so because of that now you have this crazy saturation point where it's just an it's a needle in a stack of needles you know you're you drop a million needles on the ground and you try to find a certain one it's 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 almost impossible so uh, i think that in order for an artist to have any sort of longevity is to sell fewer copies of more product. So it's like the, it's like the Sam Walton thing where you, you get, you make less money per unit, but you sell more units because it's cheaper. So what an artist is doing is they're taking a single, they're releasing it and then they release another single right after it. And then another one right after that. So it keeps the, the, momentum going and even though they might only sell a hundred copies of that single if they would have released an album of those singles they would have only sold a hundred copies of the album let's say they only have a hundred fans if they if they have a hundred fans and they put out one album with 10 songs they're going to sell a hundred copies if you have a hundred fans and you put out 10 songs throughout the year well now you've just sold a thousand copies of something you know, and created consistent income throughout that year. Yes. There are bands now that are doing things like releasing an album and, and rolling an album in uh, to the cost of a ticket. Like they'll release an album on the same day that the tickets for a tour go on sale. And then anybody who buys a ticket gets a free album, quote unquote, but the album cost is rolled into the ticket. And those, exactly. count, those count as sound scan numbers. So everybody who bought a ticket bought the album as well. And those sound scan numbers went through the roof. I remember, uh, I think Bon Jovi did it. He had a number one album this last year or two years ago, whatever, because of the concert tickets. And he also had the biggest drop from the Billboard 200. I want to say it was something like he went from like number one to like 173 or something in one week. Because everybody wow. everybody bought the tickets. I, I don't know the bottom number, but it was it was over a hundred. It was it was far, and they so everybody bought the tickets the first week. The album sold through the roof, and then the next week, it nobody bought tickets anymore because everybody already had them. It, it's interesting. I've I've actually now that you've mentioned it, I, I can think of at least two concerts that I've gone to where a free album came with the ticket. And I, one was Hootie, uh, mm -hmm. Hootie and the Blowfish, just recently. Um, and I, That's I, the new move. I think, I think Justin Timberlake did it with the 2020 album. Um, I might be wrong. I know there was one other one that, that had happened, but that reminds me of a certain U2 album. I was going to say the same. I was, I was bringing it up. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. This is what U2 did with the iPhone. Everybody yep. who bought an iPhone, you know, everybody who bought an iPhone bought a copy of the U2 album. And because who's going to, what person is going to notice a $10 inflate 
on, yeah, on a, exactly on a on a phone you know it's like so you're buying a thousand dollar phone if you know so okay now it's a thousand ten nobody nobody's nobody thinks about that they just think that's the price of the phone and they get this u2 album that they didn't really buy and the album fuck oops, sorry the album skyrockets to number one uh so and, and then created all this drama after right? the fact because people wanted to know how do i get this album off of my phone exactly my my wife was one of those people uh and and i i did i actually thought that it was one of u2's weakest albums ever you know i've i've heard the album and i'm a, i'm a pretty big fan of theirs and i didn't i didn't enjoy the album personally there's sort of like adding insult to injury if they'd have put the wow. Joshua Tree on my phone, I'd have probably been happy about it. The whole object here is to move the needle. You know, it's so hard now to move the needle. It's it's all business, which is great because business is business. But when you're you're dabbling in art, so when you deal with art and business, it always gets it always gets sticky. One other thing I wanted to touch on: we were talking earlier about the. Uh, the value of, of a song um, and how there's this misconception that, that the music is free. Um, and it's funny because I've had, I've had debates with people. Um, usually, uh, as you know, I, I still work with a few bands who will come to me and ask me for, you know, for advice or to help them with, with things here and there. And uh, every once in a while, I'll get the question of, should we should we even print CDs? And my answer is always. <laughs> I had it today. I had the same. same I swear, <laughs> I had an artist ask me today. An artist who is our age, who comes from where we come from, and I've done two other albums with him. He asked me the same question. Well, so what was your answer? My answer is always print something. Always, yes. always print physical product because it's. It's going to come back. I'm telling you, it's going to come back. And I already, to be honest with you, I can already kind of feel it coming back. More mm -hmm. people are buying vinyl. More people are buying, like, I feel bad for the book industry. I don't feel like people are buying books as much. But the album sale market, is it is a niche market, but I do feel like it's coming back. Man, I am on a CD spree right now. Because CDs, you can buy them for two or three bucks, five bucks a piece, and they have tons of great stuff. Like you can go buy CDs for like dirt cheap right now, and I'm telling you, it's going to come back. And when it does, I think it's going to be a different world when it does. Um, I think that I think that people are going to – I think a thing like what is happening now – with this quarantine and with coronavirus, I think that that is something that actually helps physical product. I think that people, because the the concept of it being taken away, you know, you think about it, buying CDs, albums, it's a browsing industry, you know, so you're putting your hands on something and you're picking it up exactly. and you're looking at it and you're putting it back. And so that concept of browsing is being threatened. And I think that, um, I, I think that it's going to be something that uh, the people are going to miss. I really do. And 
when you when I buy something, I want I, I want to hold it. There is the other side of this where um, when you own a lot of when you're a collector of things and you own a lot of things, those things at some point in your life become a burden. Uh, as you get older, um, if you don't have somebody who wants them, then they become a burden not only to yourself but to others because whenever you decide to leave this earth, they're going to have to deal with it. And so, you know, there is, there is that. And I know that sounds like I'm being morbid, but I do feel like it will eventually come back just like everything else, just like singles are coming back. And and another thing that I just read an article recently about deep listening, that's something that people haven't done in a long time that now is coming back. People are starting to, because now they have time, like you said, and so they're listening to whole albums on headphones and really experiencing that. And once that love of music and the audio file and everybody comes out, that's when, when people start to care about quality, when they start to care about what something sounds like, what it looks like. Like when I'm listening to a record, I don't want to look at a little JPEG that's 1600 by 1600 pixels. I want to look at, at an album cover, you know, right. I want to read liner notes, man. In the world we live in, guys like me are, are swept under the rug because you can't read the album credits. But hopefully that will correct itself as time goes on. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I always, um, you know, whenever I got a new album, new CD, I, you know, the liner notes, the credits, that was something that I always went through. I mean, that was just part of the experience of opening that that new album. Right. Um, you know, it, even back when, you know, we were printing lyrics and, and CD covers and album covers, um, you don't see that anymore. And, and, and it hasn't really become a standard in any of the, the digital uh, mediums either, where you can easily get lyrics. I, I did hear that iTunes was doing something uh, where, where you could get the lyrics to songs, but I haven't, it, yeah, it's not something that's out front that I've actually seen. Spotify does that for certain songs where if the song is big enough, it'll have the lyrics going if you want to see them or whatever as, as the, the song is playing. But, but I mean, it's, is that the same, you know, is that the same as yeah. like owning a copy of the lyrics, you know, Oh, well, I'll just look, I'll just look it up on my phone. Well, not if you didn't pay your phone bill, you won't. <laughs> right <laughs> okay. or your internet bill so um so that being said you know i i like physical product as well have it part one of my conversation with jack mealy be sure to find jack on social media or at his website jackmealy.com also please subscribe to the podcast on apple podcast google podcast spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast also be sure to email me feedback or suggestions to pelham show at gmail.com 